calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. My name is Aram. My pronouns are he, him. I'm the writer and producer of the actual play Dungeon & Dragons podcast, God's Fall. My name is Dylan. My pronouns are he, him. And I'm a physicist from Canada. Welcome to Kill Every Monster. I like how you just do that now. <laughs> There's a rhythm to it these days. We've been at this for a while. So, mailbag episode, season two. Let's see what people want to know. So, Jesse wants to know, what are two things you like, admire about your co-host? Aram put this in there because he's fishing for compliments. I did not. I mean, yes, I put it at the very, very top, but I didn't ask it. No, no. People constantly want to corner me into saying nice things about you. Right. Because the joke is, you're always mad at me. Yeah. Which also just makes me weirdly uncomfortable. No, I get that. You're a little bit more reserved with talking about your heart. And I'll just throw it out there. It's easy for me. It's not even that. It feels weird to me. Like, compliments generally are something I give kind of contextually. Something will happen that, like, I'm impressed by or a thing comes up. I'm like, wow, you're really, like, that was really clever. Good work. Yeah. The idea of having to sit here and go, like, what do you like about him? I don't know. Aram, Aram is likable enough. Like, he's funny sometimes. It's on purpose sometimes. Even. Uh, <laughs> well, you know what? I'll go first. Here are two things that I like and admire about you. The first thing I admire about you is your ability to keep this show on track. Your ability to organize, to make charts, to see things logically, to plan ahead, to anticipate problems. I'm bad at a lot of those things. I find those traits very admirable in you. And the other part is just, I have had some trouble mentally. I've had a lot of trouble physically. And the way that you are able to understand and then check in on me, give me some room, you know what my blinders are. So you're sometimes like, hey, Aram, are you sure you're seeing this the right way? I found that invaluable throughout this entire process. Starting off on real kill every monster stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> no, I mean, all of this is so weird 
having to like performatively take and give compliments still just like I'm telling you, this is the last time I deal with it. <laughs> Fair enough. It's the last time we ever talk about how much we like each other. Right. <laughs> a functioning professional relationship, and that's all these fuckers get to hear about from here on out. All right? Do <laughs> this in. I want them to know. Absolutely. The way you think about stories is entirely separate from me, right? Like, I am very mechanistic. I'm, like, causal one thing after another. You always have, like, a back-of-your-head instinct about where stories need to go and the things that you want to set up, and I really appreciate that. It works out well, and there are times where it just catches me, like, maybe a third of the way in where I'm like, oh, he's doing a thing. Got it. Okay, cool. And I just have to, like, quickly catch up. (laughs) And your instincts are always good enough that, like, it's not like I'm sitting there going, oh, I have to now account for it. It's just, I realize something's going on. Now I just have to make room for what, like, I don't necessarily even know what you're doing. I'm just, okay, Aram's doing a, a beat. I'll just make sure he's got space to get it done. I appreciate that. Then it resolves and I'm just like, okay, so that's what it was, cool. <laughs> totally fair. The other thing that I like about working with you is that you and I are like, we're not on the same vein in terms of how we completely lack focus. right. But I know people who like plan every session to the detail. You talked about how when you came up, like your idea of DMing came from like binders of effort and everything. Yeah. The level of just go with it you can muster, especially knowing that I start off with maybe a sentence and a half of prep and I'm just running. You know when to push and when to just go for shit. And when I'm clearly like, trying to build and you rein yourself in a little bit and being able to work around the fact that I am nominally supposed to be sort of the director of all of this, but also I am just bullshitting. Right. It's really, really useful. We do play off each other. Well, it's a really good mix. It's, it's a, it's a show that could not be made without the team effort, but our individual aspects also shine through. It goes really well. Yeah. Our next question is also from Jesse. So we're just knocking them out in semi-chronological order. Aram, how long do you spend coming up with each PC? A wildly misguided question. It is a wildly misguided question because it sounds like I, I am like a planner or prepper. You try. There are several times where in the break in between the discussion and the AP, I'm like, what do I need to do? Okay, got it. And then I come up with a character concept almost instantly when I hear the monster or the pitch from how you guys are going to run the monster because it's a one-note character. He needs to be, or they need to be, one thing that is clear and identifiable and then maybe something else that's a little hidden. That's all you have to do because that's all the time you'll have to expose. They don't need a giant background. They just need a character sheet and at least one gimmick, maybe two. And the character sheets are easy now because I just go on D&D Beyond and knock them out. It doesn't take long. I would say I spend half an hour on each character, maybe an hour. If this were Pathfinder or like 3.x, this would be this show would basically become untenable immediately because there's so many weird choices you have to make. It'd be torturous. As much as I'm a little annoyed by how much... Uh, fifth edition sort of locks you into a path where you make your choices at level one and then you level your way through them. It makes it real easy to do this show. It really does. Because I just come to you and I'm like, hey, for this one, probably makes sense to do a ranger. 
all right, let me knock out a ranger real quick. And I think I've had some, like, there have been some characters where I've put more effort into it, where I've thought about it more. And those are also usually the ones I get attached to, which is bad. So it's, it's better bad. for me to make them quickly, like them, but then able to pass them off. Mm-hmm. Bentley's the perfect example. I, Bentley, I really enjoyed. Which one was Bentley? I don't learn the names of anything you do. Bentley was from the Ableth episode. That guy sucked. <laughs> he did. He totally sucked, but you still liked him. That's the that is what I try to aim for. I was really rooting for you to die. You were, but other people liked him. Like like the fans liked Bentley enough that he was like, okay, we can see how he'd be tolerated because he's useful and he's kind of funny. I always aim for like you like you know the you know the character's a shitbag. Yeah. But you also kind there's there's some redeemable quality or at least something likable about them. Fair enough. Even the great Zilky. <laughs> so unlikable. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> it's funny. It's a perfect lead up to the next question. Ryan wants to know which PC of Aram's did Dylan like the most? And why? I'm also going to add which one did you like the least and why? We seem to ask this every season, but I think it's fair because the list expands. So, yeah, uh, we have this problem where, like you mentioned, a lot of your a lot of your characters are very one note. So asking me which one I like the most is a little flawed because they all kind of like and I say this with all due respect. I know you know where I'm coming from. They all kind of suck. They all kind of suck. Like they're one dimensional. They exist for the purpose of if they die today for no reason, uh, it's fine. Right. We can even run through half of them because like Tile, I know people love Tile, but Tile as a character was such a scumbag. It was a scumbag. It, it, It makes him fun to play, but a lot of Tile's stuff also comes from the circumstance where we just tortured Tile. Yeah. And I'm not sure how much of that came from character building versus like the session itself. And like, you know, uh, you know, you had your cat burglar who was a tabaxi because you have no creativity. Risen softly each morn. In uh, the Nothic episode, there was the Aarakocra dickhead. Uh, Don't remember his name. Who tried to cause the apocalypse. And this, I, as much as I hate to say this, desperately loathe it. I think I have to give it to Zup. Specifically from the unicorn episode. Really? Yeah. So here's why. Zup sucks. I hate Zup. Yep. Zup is unlikable and annoying. Yes. <laughs> the moment he shows up in the Dryad episode, he's kind of tedious. Granted, press the digitating a leaf into a business card. Uh, kind of funny. <laughs> it was a cool move. But then when you came in in the unicorn episode, we had people in the Discord going like, hold on, is this the same because he was just similar enough to be the same character. It was definitely stills up, but there was something wrong with him. Yeah. And you played that, that line where it's like, this is an existing character that's been fully corrupted. This is more his patrons up anymore. You played that to a fucking T. And it was really cool. He had the leg up because he showed up twice, but it was that evolution and being able to really see the, the layer on top of him. I mean, like I said, part of the reason why I don't particularly like, it's not that I don't like your characters, it's that they're easy to not care about. Right, exactly. But but Zup came back Zup twice. Zup got an extra dimension. I would say Zup was one of the most fun to play too, so that tracks well. The one that I like the least is probably Risen, 
Hmm. Because there are beats in Risen that can be good later, but I think Risen is built to be a recurring character. Right. Right? Like you built a PC. Right. Properly. And if Risen was in a campaign, then I'm sure that by session five or six, they would be likable and more developed. But as it stands, likable is a cat who is a cat burglar and didn't really do anything and like just didn't kill the monster and was like, fine, I guess we're friends now. Sure, whatever. Yeah. The situation with that was more entertaining than the character. Yeah. It's very one note, very simple, very straightforward. But also, again, and this is the thing that we have to hand you, is like when your characters are pared down nothing, they fit the situation. Like that was what that called for. If you had come in with something more developed and tried to really sell me like, oh, I am basically Catman, and there's also a Batwoman back home who's been chasing me, and let me develop this entire bat, that would have gotten real fucking obnoxious real fast. Absolutely. Dwayne Feenstra asks, will you ever switch roles and have Dylan play the PC? Mm-hmm. The thing you have to account for in me playing the PC is it has to be a switch, right? Like it has to be just you and I pivoting. Right. And I don't want to sound like I'm making myself out to be fantastic here. But asking a guest to run a game for this show is an unreasonable ask. Yes. Running a tight, like complete session in about an hour is actually really hard and a weird, unique skill set. Now, nearly any good DM could learn to do it, but no one's usually asked to. Like, anybody could do what I do, but I'm the only one who's really had to, so I'm the one who has the skill set, Yeah, right? And I have had, like, a burning desire to make a scenario for a monster like I had the desire to play a monster. I kind of have the same thing. Like, one, now we would have to have same deal. You have to learn to run a complete story in an hour, and like, you could, yeah. you just have to learn it. And then we'd have a weird choppy episode and God, it would suck so much to get an episode done and have to come back to the guest and be like, Hey, we just didn't get it tight enough. We need to re-record or whatever it may be. Also, I'm not sure I'd be a very good you, to be honest. Like you have, like there is a, there is a professorial way that you approach this and that you run a game. It's very much an education as as well as it is a fun encounter. And I'm not going to hit those notes. Mine would be vastly different. It's one thing for you to step in as the monster, yeah. right? Because then we're kind of still on track to build the same thing. We're just tossing the monster over to you. It's much, much different if I'm actually running the whole game and you're trying to be me, which is, I just don't think that's going to work. I am very curious. You you call the way I ran things professorial, and I'm I just want to know what you mean by that. There's a feeling when you DM as if you are standing in front of a chalkboard. I don't know how else I could describe that, but you kind of get the sense <laughs> All right. that you are DMing from that place, from the place of imparting knowledge as a professor. That's interesting, and I have basically no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> hey, listeners, if you're on the Discord and you've got any idea what Aram is driving at, <laughs> let me know, because I'm legitimately curious. Like, It doesn't sound like an insult. I don't feel like he's being a jerk about it. It's not an insult, I promise. But I also have no idea what that means. Fair. Especially because like, when I think professorial, because I will get like that sometimes when I'm explaining things. 
I got a teacher voice going and then I'm like speaking from on high. That's different. That's your teacher voice. Yeah, but that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking is like because in most of these I'm collaborating pretty heavily with the guests at any given moment. It becomes really hard for me to reconcile that collaboration with the idea I have of what behaving in a professorial manner means. I think the other big part of it is that unlike when I DM, you always sound like you know what you're doing. <laughs> I think that's a big part I of it. I do lie a lot. Right. But you're good at it, which all teachers would. They have to lie to cover because they can't show fear because the kids will pounce on that. And you just have this way of like, you just, we just trust you. Like, okay, well, Dylan must be right because he knows this. Yeah, that's, that's never been true in my life. <laughs> but, you know. Well, you do a real good job at faking it. McGuinn wants to know, have you ever had a 180 change in opinion about a monster and its viability in D&D or other games? And what caused that change? There's a couple of answers to this one. I've had a lot of weird little changes because I, I started off, let's start off with the one that is always contentious. I started off in the same position on the flump that everyone does where you look at it and you're like, ha ha ha, that's goofy. We could put it in a game somewhere and it'll just be a goofy thing. And then the more you read about it, the more you're like, this doesn't make any sense. And none of the stats really reflect like what I think would be entertaining. And I went from this could be a funny little thing to have in a game somewhere to this is a bad stat block and a bad monster. You had a worse opinion. It needs a rewrite. Yeah. Like a lot of the, we talked about this, a lot of the fiction, a lot of the ideas behind it could be made good. There is a good monster in the flump. The flump as it exists is not a good monster. I can see that. Absolutely. Now me, you know what? The Rakshasa, honestly, it's the Rakshasa. I've always thought of the Rakshasa as like, okay, the mean backwards hand demon tiger. And I never really gave it a lot of thought beyond that. It seemed like it needed a lot of setup. They're also that, you know, in earlier editions, there's a bit of weird mysticism that they just, you know, clawed right in. When we sat down with KP and we learned so much of the culture and the history and why these creatures act the way they do and how they think so differently from people, that really got me engaged. Plus that a that AP just played out so amazingly. I, th I think that's the one that I, I did a full turnaround on. I'm trying to think if there's anything where I did like the positive turnaround. I think the closest we get is uh, when Gnome sold me on the troll. Totally. Yeah. Still, I do think they need a little bit of reworking, but it very much like I came into that on this is a brute. I, I would use a troll if I had a like orc encounter, but like the players had gained some levels and I was like, well, they've enlisted the help of this big motherfucker. Now there's a boss fight. But like I, I didn't care about the troll in and of itself. I'm changing my answer. The mimic. Oh, yeah? because I would never use a mimic <laughs> in a game. I never would. I just think it's a dumb little chest. It's going to be a joke encounter that's going to take us out of it. I'm not going to use it. It is very much a gimmick. But the way that it was sold to us, the way that Rob got her done. Yeah, Rob was like, it could be a coin. It could spread itself this way. Think about how they would populate. It totally turned me around on a mimic and how you can use them in an encounter. Running the like campaign where there has become 
like leading up to that AP where their mimic infestation has occurred and the bank vaults have been taken over, the furious fucking dragons that have been pissed off because mimics have suddenly been in the cave. There is a whole lot of stuff you could do there for something that, like I said, is a gimmick. That's all that a mimic normally is. The cleverest thing that I've seen D&D do with a mimic was turn a door into a mimic the one time in like uh, Death House, the, the pre-adventure for Curse of Strahd. So clever too, because a, because a regular door is so often the party's enemy. To actually make the door the enemy is mwah. Yeah. That being said, like that's also been done in a bunch of video games. Right. So like at that point, it's less clever. You're recycling the gimmick from somewhere else. Oh, I think they did it in fucking Mario 64. They definitely did. Absolutely. But, there was, there, there's, there's, there's always like in a... There's always a Yeah, door or in a video game, there's always that thing where you do something repeatedly several times. It always gives you the same result, and then all of a sudden it doesn't, and that throws you off your game. I would say, yeah, that's, that's very fair, because traditional mimics, everyone knows by now. Right. It's not fun. I tried to use one once. I had a chest in a fucking room, and the entire party went, ah, it's a mimic. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God, they will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Kirby R. asks, Do you re-listen to the episodes after they've premiered, and if so, does it highlight things you liked or would have done differently? You and I are probably going to disagree on this one because... Well, we're going to have different answers, certainly. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. you're the editor. <laughs> uh, do I re-listen to them? Yes. But no, I would say like I listen to them a lot as I'm editing. But then do I re-listen once it's released as an episode on the feed? Absolutely, I do. I go for... Really? Yes. After I've edited the show and I've listened to it and I'm happy, I put it up on the feed and then I get out of my house... And I let it download into my phone, just like it would the audience. I pop in my wireless earbuds. I go oh, for yeah, a walk in public list. and I listen because I need to like, okay, no, that didn't sound as good as it did at home. This isn't loud enough. Actually, I've got to bring this back up a, a bit. Do I, I'm listening for technical things. Yeah. On occasion though, I will hear something and, and go, mm, you know what? This little beat or this little thing I could have remembered, or if I just had this mechanic right, it would have been really cool here. Yeah. But it's just tiny things. It's not, it's not big things where I would just have changed everything. With the games we run with the guests, even where there's stuff where I'm like, I would have maybe run this differently. No guest has ever taken what we've put out and not given us back something fantastic. Exactly. Right. 
So like there's very little in the APs that I would ever change. I always re-listen to the episodes essentially just before you guys do because I'm also partially doing QA, uh, except I've never heard it before. So I catch a bunch of the stuff that Aram wouldn't have noticed because he's been, you know. I'm exhausted after an eight-hour edit, yeah. Mostly the thing that I catch isn't in the AP and things I would have done differently. It's when we have these conversations, my brain is flying with like trying to keep the show running. So a lot of what comes out of my mouth is kind of stream of consciousness. And I don't know what I'm saying. Right. And then I go back and I listen to it. And I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. I should run a game like that. <laughs> yeah. Like sometimes I have like some notes ahead of time. Like we always like go over the monster and I look at the stat block. And I'm like, is there something cool we could do here? This is something I'd like to bring up. But a lot of our good points come from that synthesis of talking to the guest, having the extra input. And then you arrive at something really, really cool. And I never know what the fuck I've spoken about until I hear it on the final edited episode. <laughs> I was very clever there. Wow, that Dylan guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Honestly, like as, again, as kind of pompous as it sounds, part of why I knew the show would work is because I never remember really what I said. And then I listened to it. And I like the show. Mm -hmm. Right. You're able to kind of. So I'm coming in more or less as blind as you guys are. (laughs) Eric asks, are there any of the single episodes that you would have liked to run as multiple PCs or monsters? So far, we haven't hit any monsters where I feel like we need multiples. Like when you're running any of the quote unquote monstrous races, like, it doesn't actually make sense to run a single orc. Right. We had to run goblins. They had to be an undead horde. There had to be multiple examples of those. Yeah. You, you can't fight a zombie. You can't fight a goblin. You can't fight an orc. You wouldn't. A drow you could do. A drow assassin. Would yeah. Uh, but even so. Uh, so there's stuff like that that would be worth it. But of the stuff that we've done so far... I'm just trying to think, like, doesn't make sense to have multiple Nothics in one place. Uh, mimic. Two vampires is going to need a party. One vampire should have had a party, but. One vampire should have had a party. Two vampires demands a party and also becomes, like. So here's the major problem with running multiple monsters in one of these episodes, to my mind, at least. Unless it is something like the orc, where it isn't really a monster, it's a guy, and the thing that makes it, you know a threat is that you are going to have a party of them. There's a reason that it's like, here's the orc and the orc berserker and the orc eye of Grumsh is because that is a fighter, a cleric and a barbarian. Yeah. You have a little party of people. So when you're playing a game and you're running two vampires, it's actually exactly two vampires. It's just two people. It's at that a point. copy paste. Yeah. You're just like, what's the personality? It's just, it's just a person. You suddenly have to develop twice as many characters, which given a really tight time frame is way harder. And there's nothing mechanically that differentiates them. So it puts a little bit more pressure on the players. And for our time frame, that's just not feasible. Yep. I don't think there's anything where we had the monster that warranted like a second monster. We have had a couple. We have, Well, we've had the Ableth that warranted a party. Uh, when we do the Terrascue, you'll see what happens with that one. But that one definitely. Terrasque. When we do the Terrascue, there's definitely a party involved in that Still one. Still a Terrasque. 
Well, we have done a couple, but the question is, are there any episodes that we would like to run as multiple PCs? So is there anything you can think of going back that you would have liked to see a party go up against? Because you're right. If you wanted to make it a fair fight, the vampire should have had a party. But I think that would have actually made like it really would have diluted that story. Agreed. That had to end the way it ended. It was tragic and brutal and bloody and cinematic. And it's exactly how that should have gone. Yeah. Honestly, I'm trying to think and I just don't think so. I think we know when we need a party to make the monster work. There are some monsters, again, that demand a party. A Tarrasque demands a party. Also, if we know the monster can one-shot you, we probably need a party. The reason we put multiple PCs, PCs, they ran just some random NPC stat blocks, but for the Shambling Mound was because the Shambling Mound inherently grapples and restrains party members. So if I put Aram in there, and then Frankie gets off a nice one-two hit. It's done. Well, now Aram's been engulfed, and the session is boring. Right. It's over, and then it's just like crunch, crunch, crunch. It was 20 minutes, and we yeah. learned nothing. By having the NPCs there, we could put one in danger. One was trying to figure something out. You saw how scary this monster can truly be, because that was more of a horror than a drop-down fight. This thing just came out of the darkness and the woods and started to just rip things apart. You needed more characters to get the horror of that. It was one of the things, honestly, I was a little worried about with the uh, Mind Flayer. The Mind Flayer could have been one of those because of that psionic blast attack it does. Yep. Because of the length of the lead-up and the fact that you made the save, I mean, we avoided that problem. But there's a bunch of stuff. Like, if you go up against a cockatrice... And it turns someone in the party to stone. Well, fuck. I guess the game's over now. So we have another question from Eric. If you two shared an office space, would you have a divider line with separate styles or merge together? <laughs> I missed that. Yeah. I didn't see that one. So the absolutely necessary answer is separated. Yeah. Because if we had to be like one editing like, is one of those tasks where I imagine you have to be, like, in the zone. Yeah. That is not something we could do in, like, a weird shared cubicle. No, we would just talk to each other too much. Yeah, it'd be too distracting. You have shit to do. I Like, having access to someone to bother when I get annoyed. Like, if I'm doing school shit, I'm writing code and I can't get it to work. I need, to, I need a sounding board. And if you were right there, I would interfere with your editing constantly. But the other thing is just that shared space. You and I operate on different territories and it's fine. We can come in and when we need to collaborate, like we can call across the divider or I can come into your office, whatever. Like that would be a solid arrangement. But if we're in the same space trying to get wildly different things done at different times, we will just step on each other's each other's toes. Yeah until I'm done fucking working with you. <laughs> right. I would definitely annoy you to the point where the relationship was ruined. That's how I interpret this too. <laughs> I don't think it would work. Also, it would be a bad idea. Here's the other part. Like, we'd never be in the office at the same time. You hold a yeah. relatively regular schedule, whereas I start editing at 2 a.m. We would never see each other. It wouldn't really matter. It would mostly just be like me coming in at like, 9 30 10 and being like jesus fuck put your shit away when you leave <laughs> exactly and as far as like merging styles i mean there is no real merging styles because like yeah i am fairly spartan like i just 
my when I work, like I I have the shit I need nearby. Like you'll you'll do up all your lights and stuff, right. but otherwise, I mean, your your actual workspace is just this bookshelf behind me is only there when I so when I do live streams. There's something visual. I don't do bookshelves. I don't do a bunch of pictures on the wall or a bunch of decorations. I basically live a little Spartan and then have like some art that I like from people who made it. That's it. It'd be very easy to merge our styles. Will wants to know, did the two-parters come about because of the length of the actual play sections, or did these monsters just deserve a longer actual play section in your planning? So the question is, did it go on too long, or did we know it was going to be bigger, so we made it bigger? I don't think we've ever planned a two-parter. We have not. <laughs> absolutely have not. And after I went through the first one, I would not. We had discussed the idea before, the idea of just like, if it runs long, what are we going to do? And I think my pitch was just, oh, you know, release the talk section and release the AP section next. And then you were like, no, you didn't You didn't like the way that that broke up. I didn't. And then there was just the problem of like, you have to find a clean break in the AP to put the next episode in. And fortunately, in the way that these have shaken out, it's usually because we do an overlong intro section that we wind up having to split them. Right. So like for Rich, if I'm remembering right, we broke up the Abolith more or less when the Abolith appeared. Because we had to introduce the other characters. That's the other. Yeah, we had to do the whole church thing. Yeah, you have to bring in so much information to deal with a larger party because you have to know who they are. You need at least that beat. So you end up taking 10, 15 minutes to get there. Right, you have to know who they are. I think that's the same way. Like for the ones that are longer, we did a longer intro. And also sometimes the fight just goes on longer. Like with the shambling mound, yeah. that fight had to go on for a while for it to feel like horror. Yeah. So it had to be a longer episode. It had to be desperate. Yep. That was also one where I got to say, I'm really happy with the way the combat balance just as an aside. We hit all the things to showcase the monster and we also hit all the things that showcased that party that showed up. It really did work well. There are some that I know will be two-parters. Like, we've recorded the Tarasque with Harley and the party for that one. Like, that's gonna run long. Absolutely, it'll run long. Just by dint of hit points. I didn't plan for that to be one session. Because, like, of course it's not. It's going to be too long. Right. But even then, we didn't plan it as a two-parter. We just planned it as we're going to have to fight a Tarrasque and the fight's going to be too long. So at some point in the edit, you're just going to have to make a call. Right, just so I can like get out of that edit for that week and then have the break for the next one, yeah. But as far as like, you know, we didn't plan the Shambling Mound. Neither one of us had any idea that was going to be a two-parter. Same for the Aboleth. Like mm -hmm. I said, that was just, it wound up over long. That's how it works out. Can you think of any monster or any circumstance where you would want to do it in two parts, like as an actual choice? If we put all the giants into one category, I think that would deserve a two-parter because we have to then explore that a little bit more and the story has to be a little bit more involved because we have to touch on all the giants somehow. So if we did something like that, then absolutely. I would, said, I, I would want it set up as a two-parter so we have more time. Other than that, I don't think there's any monster that if we really honed it down, we couldn't knock out in one episode. Maybe, maybe the Lich. Mm. Just because one of the things you could showcase there is the whole, you know, coming back. 
having the lich fight kind of lazily and highlighting the uh highlighting the party letting them build up because i think of magic vaguely scientifically you know you don't want to take it too far but like it it should make sense if you kill a lich you should immediately be able to find its phylactery if you've got a clever enough wizard because the soul has to go there so it's we hunt down the lich we kill the lich and then we track the lich back to its phylactery and that's the second part, going after the phylactery. That's the second part, is in the room where your phylactery exists, fight for your life. That's great. Because that's also a wild, like, that's the way that you make those two things feel different, is one of the fights is, the party has found me. <laughs> right? Like, you you can Skeletor it up. If you lose, it doesn't matter. You're immortal. But then when you're standing in a room with your soul box... And it will break and you'll die forever and all of your plans will be for nothing. That's a different fight. That's a cornered lich. That is a desperate lich. Yeah. We talk about this all the time, but part of the way I try to sell this, part of the thing that's interesting to me about this show is the opportunity to play a monster to the teeth. Yeah. Like I will always hold back against my parties because I, I want them to win a little bit. Like... I'll make it hard, but I'm on their side. Absolutely. Being in that situation, having a lich with all of their faculties there who knows that if they lose, it's forever and is trying to kill the party for their own survival, that would be so much fun to play. That would be amazing. And you hit on a very important part of our show because these are one shots, because we're not going to see these characters again, except for very rare exceptions. Mm -hmm. It plays like D&D should. It actually, we're actually playing the game where these characters can die at any moment, as opposed to how you always have to, if you're a, you know, a decent DM, some DMs are just, are just yeah. assholes, but if you have to, you have to kind of like, well, let's, let's walk that one back. Cause some, sometimes that is also the game that people are on to play. So like credit, if you're playing an intense game, Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. If, if that's what everyone is on is on board for. Even if this is just like a fucking beer and pretzels, like make three characters, we'll run a dungeon this weekend and I'll just try to rip your throat out. Like, okay, cool. Respect that. But I form as much of an attachment usually to my PCs as, as I would if I was running them. It still doesn't matter because they're there to possibly be slaughtered so the monsters can really shine. You've kind of taken that plot armor away from the PCs and then given it to the monster. It's part of what made the end of that Mind Flayer episode so cool was that like, if that were a campaign in any way, you would never make that call. Now, if you had a party at your back, you would never really make that call. But <laughs> this one time. But as a creature singularly who wants to do nothing but take out one more Mind Flayer on the way down, perfect. Just as a side note, I love how like I is, I established the mind sword with no idea that that was going to happen in the end because the way that we describe it, it sets it up so perfectly for the end. We're very lucky in the way plots fall out. Yeah, we are. We really are. The way you run a good session is paying attention and being open to the plot when it presents itself. Like you're not going to write something better than what you and your players and just random chance can come up with. So you listen and you hear the beats as they drop. And then when something cool can happen, you jump on it. 
you find one thing, you find an NPC, you find something they like, and you loop it back. Players love nothing more than understanding that they are affecting the story in more ways than just when they're on stage. Dave Clark asks, what's your favorite canine monster? First, wait, a question. Clarification. Yes. Do kobolds count? (sighs) I mean... So there's two parts to that question, because one, you're talking about, for those who are unfamiliar, for those who joined uh, joined us, as I did, in like 3.x forward anywhere, uh, we know kobolds is draconic. Right. But in their original, like, first edition AD&D uh, incarnation, kobolds were little yappy-type dogs. Yeah, they're like dog boys. So that's where Aram's question is coming from, is do we consider that? But even then, that comes into like... They're dogish. They're not They're not. How canine. do you define a canine right. monster, right? They got to like, have four legs. Like, would that make, they got to look like a dog. They, they, they have to have a tail. Ignoring, obviously, the distinction of lupine versus canine yeah. versus vulpine. Like, uh, does a werewolf constitute a canine monster? Because it's it's got doggy bits, but it's also mostly a dude. So... I don't know. I think that would be fair to say kobolds count, but I also just want to be clear that we're warping the question at that point. Agreed. So let's let's state the rules thusly. It has to have four legs. It has to okay. act like a dog. It could have more intelligence, sure. but it's got to act kind of dog-like. And it has to be the kind of animal that would definitely run in a pack. Hellhound. I knew you were going to say hellhound. I knew you were. Well, yeah, because they're... Fucking cool. <laughs> and also, I love devils. Yep. It's perfect. Why would I not like the devil dog? Yeah. And I would say blink dogs, which is the exact opposite. So, yeah, because they're fun and a little doofy. And also because the blink dog episode we ran was such a great AP. It was so much fun. I can't wait for them to hear it. I think they're, they're going to love it. Don't get me wrong. But, like, that was, Jess, if you hear this, I want you to know that I mean it as a compliment. That was such a fucking massive game. Oh, my God. It went off the rails right away. Immediately. Like, immediately. I think that was the most D&D we've ever run. 100%. Including when we recorded the Pixies and you literally had me run a module. I did. I just handed it to you. Here it is. It's done. So here's the thing with Hellhounds. Hellhounds hit this really cool thing for me where they have the intelligence of six. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're lawful evil. Being not particularly bright and lawful evil and like commanded makes them very, very interesting to run against a party. Because like blink dogs are cool and I like them a lot. And we talked about them. You can do a lot of good stuff with them. But like there's a lot of times where I feel like blink dogs as a subsidiary thing are like you're in territory that could be replaced by an NPC. Yeah, it's a bit. Yeah, blink dogs are very much a bit, and they lead into displacer beasts, which are much more themselves the focus there, right? Yeah, agreed. In the session with the blink dog, the displacer beast is the meat of the fucking thing. Yep. I could run a session with a hellhound where it's something like your patron has decided that the contract is up and you're his now. Oh, that's a good way to run that one. And you're being hunted by a pack of wolves that breathe fire and they're intelligent. Like that entire fucking thing, you know, that 
the fucking Jurassic Park. Oh, clever girl. Yeah. Except it's a dog and it breathes fire. And you know it's coming. That's your pitch. Yeah, I like that quite a lot. You know it's coming. The other way I could see us doing it is if um, hellhounds were sent after Tile. I could also see it that way. But but you're right. It's it's something about one person being hunted by a couple monsters. That would make the hellhound really shine. And I mean, honestly, we have no idea how we're going to run them when it comes up. Because like, right. it's hugely dependent on the guests. But even things like the moment of if you're hunting an infernal warlock and you have the party sitting there with them and, you know, the fucking paladin looks over and all of a sudden the warlock's eyes go red and then a bunch of barking that was getting quieter suddenly turns around and starts getting louder. It's like Because of course your patron knows where you are. Of course he can look through your eyes. It's like, oh no, sorry, it's back this way. That was part of the deal, yeah. There's so many cool things you could do with that. I really do love the idea of like warlocks on the run. I do. It's something that you don't get to do as much with clerics because gods feel like they should have more precision over their power. A cleric who has fallen loses everything immediately. Right. A warlock who breaks their contract. Like if the connection is still there, the connection's still there. The connection has to be maintained for the patron to know where you are. Yeah. So as long as that connection's maintained, you're still drawing power. You could bullshit it so many different ways or like something like the the patron didn't understand the nature of the connection. Like yeah. they have to have you there to disconnect it or whatever it may be. Basically, patrons are just more fallible than gods typically. Basically. So it makes it more fun to play with that space. You can have that antagonistic relationship. Also, their needs are more obvious. Yes. For our last question, Phil asks, what's your all's favorite dinosaur? And we're just not going to answer that one. What do you mean we're not going to answer? Oh, because we answered in the dinosaur episode, yeah. don't we? We actually talk about that in the dinosaur episode. And, I mean, we kind of talked about this, but I think the dinosaur episode is probably going to be, if not the premiere, one of the first few episodes they're going to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to get that one out. So if you're a patron, you know, this is one of the times you lose. Because, like, you're going to hear this way sooner than everybody else. Yeah. Which means that you're going to have to just sit there knowing the dinosaur episode is coming, and then you'll get the answer. And if you're not a patron, then you might get an answer in, like, two weeks. It's coming. Maybe you're a little bit behind, and it's already in the feed. Check the feed after this one. Maybe you're one of the people who, like, you listen to all the proper episodes, and then you're like, I'm bored. I'll go back. I'll listen to these mailbag bullshit (laughs) things. I already know what the favorite monster is. They handled that one. All right, agreed. Phil, I want you to know that we do care about you and your questions. Just that you gotta wait. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The ancient mountainous deserts to the south of Faerun are the places where mortals first raised great temples and unlocked powerful secrets. 
A kingdom once fractured by infighting has been united under the iron claw of the red dragon, Chazar. The great lizard's quest for immortality has become an all-consuming obsession. His need for worshippers has set him on a path against the old gods of these lands, and they will not go quietly. An unlikely cabal of deities has banded together to undermine Jazar and ensure that their temples remain protected and active. They've traced tendrils of fate to preferred timelines, then selected five mortals who had the best chance of bringing those futures to fruition. You will take on the role of one of these chosen in Death to the Dragon King. Find out more about this Start Playing Games campaign and all of my other available games at aram.gay.